Hey, science fans. One thing we don't get to talk about enough on this show is environmental concerns, ecology, resources, that sort of thing. I wish we we had more on, on this topic on the show. Fortunately, I found a new podcast that I believe you guys will enjoy called Waterline. Waterline podcast is everything related to water, how to make sustainable irrigation, can water bring peace, how do you uh, keep water clean and and safe and how much money does does our current water system cost in the US what changes can we make and how we use water i just listened to a fantastic episode called water in peace hydropolitics it was all about um, the many different conflicts over different regions of water we've drawn all of these arbitrary lines for our kind of political regions and one thing that we didn't really factor in when doing that was water sources so now there's all of these uncomfortable to say the least conflicts uh, where all of these areas overlap over water sources fantastic episode the waterline podcast is an initiative of israel new tech a part of the israeli ministry of economy and industry so check it out for everything you need to know about the economics political social behavioral technological and environmental aspects of water search for waterline podcast on itunes or in your android podcast app thank you everybody for listening listen all the way until the end to get an update on my good trip tour for the fall I will be now be doing um, roughly 60 cities. Don't have them all 100% confirmed yet, but I have a whole bunch of uh, a bunch of dates to tell you about. So um, yeah, listen to the end and enjoy today's program. It's fantastic. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. Misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. I'm your host, Shane Moss. Today, I am at Reed College. I'm talking with Professor of Philosophy and for the last 15 years, the editor and chief of the Journal um, of Artificial Life. Mark Bedell. Um, thanks for joining me, Mark. My pleasure. I, <laughs> I always, it's a kind of a running joke on the show that after I do an intro, because I always butcher them, I have to like look at the guest worried that I screwed something up. Nailed it. Um, so you're the very first philosopher um, on the program. So um, actually, if we could just in the, in the first, first few minutes before we get more into your work, um, just because you're the first one, which is great, whatever great means. Um, if, if we could talk about uh, just what, um, what philosophy means, because I think a lot, of, a lot of people would kind of think of themselves as philosophers, right? So, so what's the difference between, um, between me sitting around having a like, quote-unquote philosophical discussion with my friends about life or God or whatever it might be, religion, and, and um, what a... Uh, what an actual uh, professional philosopher does. Yeah. Well, I think one way I like to describe what philosophy is, is 
first of all, it's an attempt to understand uh, the fundamental aspects of reality as opposed to the superficial aspects of reality. That's one aspect of it. Of course, what does that mean? The best in different people may have different ideas about what's fundamental and what's not. But for example, um, uh, philosophers worry about or think about questions like uh, what causation is, what identity is, what existence is. These are what I examples of what I mean by fundamental concepts. What the mind is, what right and wrong is, um, not just what these things are, but where they come from. Like, for example, ethics, right and wrong. Who gets to say what's right and wrong? That's another philosophical question. So it has to do with fundamental aspects of reality rather than superficial aspects. Furthermore, it is interested in the essential features of the fundamental aspects of reality rather than the contingent accidental features that might be different. So we want to know, we want to figure out answers which are enduring and don't depend on contingent facts about, you know, what the weather is or what actually happened this year or who's in office this term or whatever. That's right. Kind of like more enduring truths. So, um, and then the last thing I would say is, so first of all, this, so what I said so far might apply to the kind of conversation you'd have with your friends when you have a quote unquote philosophical conversation, you know, you're wondering about the meaning of human life. That's a fundamental issue. Right. And you're, uh, trying to answer this in a general way, not tied to specific concrete details like your specific life or your friend's specific life, you want to know more generally. But the last thing that I think is important about it is that philosophy tries to address these issues by using reason and argumentation which have uh, uh, broad appeal or can make sense to lots of people. In other words, we try to reason about the essential nature of the fundamental aspects of reality in a way that engages uh, everyone. You don't have to have a certain experience. You know, you don't have to have been in a certain place and seen something. It's something that's more objective, something that's more public, something that can be more shared. I mean, some people might have a particular mystical experience maybe, and they think they have some insight into the essential nature of the fundamental aspects of reality. But if you don't have that experience, it doesn't make sense to you. Mm-hmm. That doesn't work in philosophy. I mean, that may work in life, but that doesn't... Philosophers are trying to find reasons for things that can be shared and doesn't depend on you having had a particular experience. Okay, and so that, so, so that was an example of what would be a superficial if I were to have a spiritual experience. Um, well, I wouldn't say superficial, but I'd say it's something which is about something fundamental, and it is about the essential nature of the fundamental uh, nature of reality, but it's not something, it's something which is too private Mm. to be part of philosophy. Philosophy is a public art or Mm. a public process like science is. For example, let's say, I know a lot of your listeners are, are scientists and interested in science. How does science work? If someone had a mystical experience and could see what the truth is about physics, for example, that's not going to, you know, some physical law, that's not going to work in physics. It's not going to convince any other physicists. You've got to go find empirical evidence or have a theory that, you know, mathematically can show something. And so philosophy is like that. You have, you have to, what, what matters is not just the subject matter, but the, the methods you use to convince people. They have to be methods that anyone 
can listen to and anyone can appreciate. So you can't just say, just believe me. <laughs> That's right. So it's like right. science in that regard. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it seems like, you know, when you're talking about what's the difference between white, right and wrong and where do these ideas of right and wrong, I mean, it, like there's um, uh, one of my favorite books, The Moral Animal, uh, which is a lot of evolutionary ideas kind of put together and it seems like it's combining science and philosophy. I mean, it seems mm-hmm. like often there's not all that much of a distinction. I think that's right. I mean, in, in many cases, there's not much of a distinction. And that's especially true for the the work that I do. Uh, there are some things which are clearly philosophy and not science. And there are some things that are clearly science and not philosophy. But when science is also dealing with the fundamental questions, the foundational questions, and it's interested in not just the accidental features of these fundamental things like physics is concerned with uh, the motion of matter and it's interested in what is matter what is energy and it it wants to know in a very general way what matter and energy are something that would apply to any place in the universe or any other universe that's like ours so um so that's you know philosophy is is similar to that and um some of the specific questions that I'm interested in having to do with the nature of evolution or the nature of life, well, these are things that scientists also study. Right. But when they study, but sometimes they're studying questions that have to do with lots of contingent details. Like in biology, uh, an important part of biology is actually to record the history of life. You know, what actually evolved from what, where did it start, where did it move? Natural history. A, a, a record of the history of life is highly contingent. You know, there are lots of ways it could have been different if the climate had been different or if an asteroid hadn't hit the Earth. So it's full of contingency, but they want to, but there was an actual history and they want to trace it. So that's an example of something which is much, that issue, that concern with the contingent details of history are not so characteristic of philosophy. However, there are other questions about the nature of evolution, such as, that biologists are interested in, such as uh, how is evolution as creative as it is? In other words, how do you start with simple forms of life, which are simpler than even the simplest bacterium alive today, and end up with a whole diversity of forms of life, ranging from simple bacteria to very complicated creatures like humans and all sorts of other things that are found throughout the diversity of life. So yeah, it doesn't seem like there's much of like a universal direction, really, other than toward complexity, really. That's right. And so some biologists are very interested in that question. Is there some arrow in evolution which is pointing towards complexity, for example, a drive towards complexity? Like, like humans, we won. We did it. We're, we're, the, we're the best, right? That's, that's like well, kind of a lot of people's. That's what some people say. Like Stephen Jay Gould is very interested in this question, and he's, our, he's a biologist, of course, and or was a biologist uh, when he was alive. Um, and... But philosophers are thinking about those same questions because this is a question which is about a fundamental aspect of reality, that is to say, if evolution has some arrow towards complexity, say. But, and that question isn't, doesn't depend on lots of contingent details about the way life is in quite the same way that natural history does. Natural history is the history of contingent details. The question whether there's an arrow to evolution is more like the question of is there an, uh, you know, the second law of thermodynamics in physics, is there some physical propensity for things to get more and more disordered as time goes on? 
In fact, what's interesting about this question of whether there's an arrow of evolution is that it seems to be an arrow that's pointing in the opposite direction from the second law of thermodynamics. Right. And these are consistent, but there are, there are things happening at different levels in reality, and investigating these is much more abstract and much more like what philosophers typically deal with. So for questions like that, a lot of the questions that I work on, like why is evolution as creative as it is, or what is the distinction between something being alive and not being alive, these are questions that scientists have a, a lot to add to, but also philosophers have a lot to add. So the long, uh, the short answer is yes, I think that at the intersection between philosophy and science, there are questions where you really have to use both kinds of methods. But then there are other questions on the other end of philosophy, which are not at all like science, and there are other questions on the other end of science, which are not at all like philosophy. Mm. But where they meet, I don't think it's useful to try to separate them, actually. I just, I just work there, and half the people I talk with are scientists by training, and half the people I talk with are philosophers, and we're just trying to figure out the answers, and we need to all talk together. Right. Yeah. I, well, as you're talking about the, as you're talking about the kind of uh, trajectory of of evolution, it just it, it made me think that. It, does this happen to you if anytime you're at um, some dinner party, you tell someone you're a philosopher? Is their first question always, "So, what's the meaning of life?" Is that something you get? Yeah, that I comes get that up. just having that a science up. podcast. That does come up, and uh, <laughs> yeah, when and of course when I'm talking about the nature of life, I'm not talking about the meaning of life in right. that sense. But and, and I think philosophers these days don't talk so much about the meaning of life anymore. However, in the traditional sense that we all discussed it in high school and things. Yeah. Um, but I think that's a little bit of a shame. I, mean, I think that it's, it's a question that there's no reason why philosophers couldn't talk about it. I mean, the meaning of life, I said, does seem pretty fundamental. And yeah. you know, if we're interested in the meaning of life in a very general way, like not just me and my friends, but something that could be, have some universal truth, that's a philosophical question. Yeah, I mean, how much universal truth do you think there could be? I mean, I don't, I don't really like the idea of like a singular meaning of yeah. life because it just doesn't seem to ring true or make sense. It seems like meaning is very contextual and dependent and subjective, and that we could, kind of get to choose our own destinies and in in certain ways. And we have right. Well, I would say that that is an answer. That's a possible answer you know, maybe the right answer to the question, what is the meaning of life? Which is to say, you create it yourself. First of all, there's not one meaning. There are many. Yeah. And where does it come from? It's not handed to you. I mean, you can, someone will try to hand it to you and you can accept it, but you had their freedom and you had the responsibility maybe even to f make up your own mind about it. Right. That's actually, if someone asked me about the meaning of life, I would say something like that is what I believe. But which yeah. something like what you just said. However, I would say, that is an answer a philosopher could give to this question. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, so I, think I you're always a say, philosopher. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> By instinct. I, I always. Uh, I mean, my my listeners know. Whenever I say, I always just say the meanings of life. I never I never say the meaning of life because um, it just it, yeah. I don't know. It just irritates me a little bit. I, I don't know. Maybe I guess I'm probably wrong, but or perhaps wrong. Um, we had a very different upbringing. Your father was a philosopher. Um, was it, and then you became a philosopher. See, if you were me, you would have rebelled. I would have rebelled against anything. My parents, did you ever like when you were a teenager? No, I'm not going to think. I'm not going to think. No, yeah, I didn't, I didn't do that. But, but I would say that, uh, yeah, when I was a teenager, teenager, I was 
as rebellious as anyone else, I think. And yeah. so I would say that uh, I became a philosopher in spite of the fact that my philosopher, my father was a philosopher rather than in any evident way to me because of the fact that he was a philosopher. Mm. In other words, I, I felt I backed into it. Um, uh, I wasn't, I didn't feel, if you had asked me at the time, I wouldn't have said, and I still don't believe that it's true that I was doing it because my father was doing it. However, uh, I think I just had it in my blood, uh, so to speak, you know, maybe I, I don't know if it's associated with related to genes at all. You know, I might've gotten it from my father in some sense, but it's not as if around the house, things that he was saying were making me interested in philosophy, because in fact, what he would, uh, you know, the the more likely thing that he would do at home is maybe give a lecture or something, which is not exactly, it would be more of a turnoff rather than a turn on. Right. And uh, however, I would do want to say that when I did become a philosopher and um, when I was graduating from college, for example, and going on to grad school, my father and I did begin to share our philosophical work. Like he would read things that I was writing on, mm. writing about, and I would read things he was writing about, and it was a total delight to be able to share this because he loves philosophy and I love philosophy, and we had this thing that we both loved that we could share. And uh, we had a special connection because of that that he didn't have with my siblings. Um, and I think it was, I say, not, it was kind of an accident in a way. I backed into it, I think, but I'm very glad that I did. Yeah, maybe there is some sort of genetic propensity for kind of deep thought for like maybe uh, maybe some people like daydream more or, or something like that. Who knows? Um, so talking about the we talk about evolution quite a bit on the show and we we haven't really. You know, we haven't we haven't really talked about evolution kind of from the beginning, like you're talking about. And and we've never talked about how how this um, complexity did start to emerge and, and we've never other than just slightly touching on it we've never really talked a whole lot about emergence and, and reductionism can you share some of your work yeah I'd like I'll uh, like to describe a couple things um, so first I want to tell you a bit more about this arrow of complexity idea that we discussed and then after that I want to say something about uh, cultural evolution i think because i'm very interested in cultural yeah. evolution and how that's related and different from biological evolution um and and just remind me if there are other things that i yeah. you'd like me to elaborate on no problem um so first this arrow of complexity um first thing to recognize is that it's just an objective fact that essentially everyone agrees on agrees about that life did start out very simple. You know, we don't actually know how life arose yet or what the first forms of life were, but everyone who thought about this agrees it must have been extremely simple. Something like current bacteria, roughly that level of complexity or even simpler than that. And it's undisputable that some forms of life now, like human beings are one example, but there are plenty of others uh, that are incredibly complicated. And also life is incredibly diverse. That's well-known. And the main question is, that's, so we agree about that fact, but what we don't, or we're not sure is, why is it that way? And some people, like me, have the hunch, and it's only a hunch, that it's not an accident. There's some reason that this happened, that, that 
there really is some kind of general tendency for certain kinds of evolving systems to have entities uh, to govern entities that become can become more and more complicated. In other words, that what happened in the history of life on Earth wasn't just an accident. Um, other people, like Stephen Jay Gould, whom we mentioned earlier, a biologist who's very interested in this, thinks that he's very skeptical of the kind of hunch that I just had, because he thinks that you might be thinking that, Mark, because that puts you and other human beings, uh, gives you a special place in the universe. It's as if evolution is heading towards you. You right. belong here. Yeah, You're classic the goal. egocentrism that we tend exactly. to really love and fall for all yeah. the time. Yeah, and, and especially we love it and fall for it when we don't recognize it and aren't aware of it. And as soon as it's pointed out, then we think, oh, maybe I'm not really entitled to think that. That's not a good reason for believing that there's some arrow of evolution. I'm the so, best at being not egocentric, by the way. <laughs> Very good at it. <laughs> so, so Gould says, oh, yeah, I agree with you about the facts. Life did get more complicated. But it was an accident. You know? mm. if, you, if, uh, if you rewound the tape, if you rewound history and then let it happen again. It would all be different. It could all be very different right. and life might remain simple forever. And so my hunch is that that's wrong. Really? His hunch is that that's right. Hmm. And how are we going to resolve this? So, um, well, what he did was write books and write a, you know, thousands and thousands of words that try to convince you. And one of the main things I want to say is, first of all, um, this is an open question. We do not know the answer to how the history of life on Earth actually became, showed this, this growth of increasing complexity. Many people are surprised to hear this. They think, oh, wait, didn't I learn that in high school biology somewhere? I mean, I don't remember all the details, but I thought we had covered things like that. Like, you know, didn't Darwin explain that? In fact, Darwin thought he did explain that. If you read the last two sentences in The Origin of Species, you know, his most famous book, he says he's answered that question. And he says, and his answer is natural selection. It's natural selection that makes things more complex. But that's, that's what he believed. But it turns out that's wrong. Most people don't recognize this. Why do I say that's wrong? Well, because I and a number of my colleagues have been making computer models for many years in this field called artificial life, which is, uh, you know, you, you mentioned that I'm the editor-in-chief of that journal called Artificial Life. This is one of the places where that work is published, this kind of work. Um, what we've been doing for many years is making computer systems that evolve by natural selection. And they have lots of the details that, you know, any detail anyone has thought of that might be relevant from biology will put it in the models. But the interesting thing is that none of those models, none of those computer systems show the same kind of growth of complexity, show this arrow. Mm. And so that means it's not, natural selection that's enough to produce that arrow because these models definitely these computer systems definitely have natural selection i mean you can make a computer system where you have a population of things and they yeah, reproduce could, can you talk a little bit about like what these computer models look like yeah i'll give you a i'll tell you about one of them that i've worked with a lot um you can think of this as a very very simple model of something like bacteria in a petri dish that are moving around on a surface, eating food. 
and imagine the food is regrowing. But what we do is we have a computer system in which we create a two-dimensional world and we have a population of agents that we create and they have genes that govern their behavior and the genes say things like, if you see food in front of you, then move and move directly to the front. They might say, the genes might say something like, if you don't see anywhere, any food around you, then take a big step to the left. Anyway, they have genes inside them, which you write into the computer code, which say how they behave depending on what, how much food they, where they see food around them and how much food they see around them. And then... What you do is say, well, if they, they move around the world, you have a, a bunch of agents and you start out by putting by giving them random genes. So you randomly assign the the genes that tell them how to move in their environment. And then we also say, okay, if you if they find food, they eat the food and their amount of food inside them increases. So they have an internal food store. And you keep track of how full it gets. The more food they eat, the more that, that reservoir fills up. But then every time they move, it takes energy to move. And so every time they move, the energy in their reservoir goes down. The amount of food resources they have goes down. And so basically they have to keep on eating to survive. And if they ever can't find food, then their food resource will run out and they'll die. And if they die, they're just removed from the world and, and the rest of the creatures go on. Now let's say some of them are they have genes that are more make them more successful at finding food in this in this two-dimensional world. Well, if their reservoir fills up, then they reproduce. So what does that mean? That means they make a copy of themselves. They make a new a daughter uh creature <clears throat> which has the same genes and is just in a different like next to it in the world. And then they each go and follow the behavior dictated by their genes. Of course, there's some probability that a child will have a mutation, so it might not have exactly the same genes as their parent. It might say, in, when you see food in front, you should take two steps rather than one step forward. And maybe that's better in that environment, or maybe it's worse. So are, are the er- when it reproduces, how, how are, are the errors happening by accident, or is that built into the program? The errors are happening by randomly changing the genes. Oh, okay. So you make, you just, you know, yeah, there's a way to do that with the programming. Yeah, so they're they're changing, but they're changing by random mutations. And now you have this world with a bunch of creatures running around, and food is kind of coming in and then being eaten away, and new food is coming in. And some of these creatures have genes that make them better at surviving, and they reproduce, and those genes spread. And other of these creatures, this is all on a computer, uh, have genes that mean they can't find food, and they run out, and then they die. And so over time, what happens is the ones that have better genes survive and they reproduce and then their mutations with their children and often those mutations make the children worse, but sometimes they make the children better than the parents and then those children will survive and they'll even have more children than their parents did. And so over time, the population evolves better and better strategies at uh, better and better genes for finding the food in the environment that you created in the computer. Mm. And so there's natural selection happening because you have a population of entities that reproduce and they have traits that affect their behavior and affect their survival and their reproduction. And these traits are passed on. And so 
It meets all the conditions that Darwin was talking about, and many people have made many models like this. And what they find is when you turn them on, interesting things happen. The creatures evolve. They get better at surviving in their environment. And, of course, there are many, many, many various ways you can do this. Like, for example, one of the experiments we did was had the creatures evolve to the world, and then we changed the food. It's like having an asteroid hit the Earth. Mm-hmm. And so they have to – all the things they knew in the past are no longer any good, and they have to learn new things. And so we see how well the population responds to an environmental catastrophe like that. Anyway, so that's roughly what these models are like and gives you a feel for how all inside the computer you have a population of agents that have genes – that are subject to random mutations and the agents with the best genes survive and they pass on those genes to their kids and those genes spread to the population. And you're saying some of the results that you're seeing in these programs are, are different than how life appears to be evolving. And spe- specifically, the difference is that the difference I'm talking about now is that in none of these cases do you start with something which is very simple and then uh, through the course of evolution, have more and more complicated things emerging. So that's, I mean, I'm saying there's some qualifications I should add here and there. I mean, there are ways you can do that by, quote unquote, cooking the results, you know, kind of forcing it to happen. But that, then that's not interesting because you want it to happen spontaneously, like it presumably did, like it has done with the history of life on Earth. So you want some, so the bottom line is that you might have thought it's easy to make a system. Well, Darwin in particular thought it was uh, possible that natural selection was enough to create this arrow. And I can tell you there are hundreds and hundreds of examples of systems that have natural selection. Often there are these computer systems, there are a bunch of them in the real world though, and they don't show this increase in complexity. So there's something more to the story. So the first thing to recognize is that the, the creativity of evolution is not already solved. We don't know. I mean, it's true that it happened, but we don't know whether it was an accident or whether it was something that was to be expected. Like my hunch is that it was something that was like a natural, it's something like a law of nature, kind of like the second law of thermodynamics, but pointing in the opposite direction in the right. life. Well, when you, when you talk about that, and, and I don't want to overextend myself, I'd, I'd really need to brush up on my physics but was there was there stuff like entropy built into these um programs that um, that, that would kind of force it to resist a, a kind of a natural breakdown uh there there's not necessarily that's not necessarily built in so in other words even when you don't actual life has to if it does get if it is getting more complex through the course of evolution because of some general tendency for there to be, an, in other words, for some arrow, because mm-hmm. of some arrow pointing in that direction, then, um, sorry, I forgot, what was the question? Was just kind of like, well, I, I mean, I, I guess the point that I was going to make was, was just, uh, is evolution, is the complexity of evolution this, uh, this possible outcome of, of kind of our war against entropy? Like, are, are more complex life forms, in fact, more stable and more resilient to to being broken down by natural empathy um or right, entropy um, entropy <laughs> yeah right um i think that 
one of the defining features of life or hallmarks, important hallmarks of life is that it is able to resist, to persist in the face of the second law of thermodynamics. Mm -hmm. And so that's uh, even to be able to remain in existence for a very complicated organism like a human being or even like a bacterium, you know, very complicated device like that. Um, the second law of thermodynamics says disorder will, can, will in general always grow. Well, this is a, a living being is an example of a highly organized thing that doesn't dissipate. I mean, in, well, as long as it's alive. While it's remaining alive, it's maintaining its complexity. And that's part of the mystery, part of the magic of life that it does this. And so life is, life's existence is almost defined by its, its ability to surmount the second law of thermodynamics. Of course, life is completely consistent with the second law of thermodynamics. And the way it does this is that, I mean, the second law of thermodynamics is still true, but life does this by, so disorder, in other words, disorder is increasing globally, but locally order is being created. So life is local exceptions to this globally true second law of thermodynamics. So globally, in the whole universe, you know, the entropy of the whole universe is slowly increasing, the disorder. But where life exists, right there you have these local exceptions. I mean, they're not literally exceptions because the law says what happens globally. Mm. But from a local perspective, you can see, oh, in this particular context where we have a life form, part of what's characteristic about it is it is a... Uh, it's an it's a resistance to this to the pull of disorder hmm i mean isn't isn't this almost an inevitable outcome of just stability and where you have the big bang and you have there were also unstable elements and they just didn't kind of quote unquote survive just because they were unstable inherently the stable ones were the only ones yeah. that that stuck around. And um, so the so life it, is just is hyper stable. Life is just life arises where you have these pockets of stability. May, yeah. I don't know. I guess I haven't spent enough time <laughs> thinking of That's why I'm talking to you, I guess. Yeah. No, I think it's the opposite actually that every life form is uh, even the simplest life forms are incredibly complicated. You know, it's, it's a little hard to, make this kind of to talk about precisely how complicated things are but speaking roughly and loosely um even the simplest form of life has like you know many more moving parts than the right. largest artifact made by human beings like i don't know the space shuttle or something like that so the point is that the space shuttle human beings have to continually repair it it will fall apart over time if you don't if human beings aren't carefully preserving it. And the, the beautiful thing about life forms is you don't need, they take care of themselves automatically. They repair themselves automatically. They organize themselves automatically. That organization, which is highly, uh, life forms are very organized, uh, highly complicated. And it, the second law of thermodynamics is trying to destroy all of that order. And so what I'm saying is life forms are cases where locally this order's going to remain like you are a very complicated thing and that very complicated structure is going to persist through your whole lifetime mm. so you know eventually you'll die and it'll it'll dissipate and you'll return to dust so hey. but <laughs> not not me yeah not but in happen. the meantime 
it's amazing that this complicated structure is able to persist. And how is that? How is that? Well, we know a lot about the answer to this. It basically has to do with metabolism. This is what this is what one of the fundamental points that um, Schrodinger was trying to talk about in his famous book called "What Is Life," which was written about sixty years ago, and um, he was saying one of his main points was that life has the ability by to maintain its order in the face of this pull to make everything disordered because of metabolism. That is to say, because it's able to extract energy and raw materials from its environment by eating and then to transform those things into the stuff it needs to, you know, repair its structure or to build new structures, um, including building new forms of life inside it when it reproduces. So the way life forms uh, locally beat the second law of thermodynamics is because they're extracting energy and and food from their environment. So globally, disorder is increasing, but it's able to it's able to locally remain highly highly organized um, because you keep on eating, basically. So um, how, how do you think about it differently when in terms of so we're talking about an individual organism. How do you think about about it differently when you're talking about like a species? Is that what you're? Is that more of a? Is that what you mean when you're saying global? No, no. I just mean uh, by globally, I mean considering All you know the whole universe, right? And so the idea is that you sort of you know measure how organized the whole universe is, you know, at a molecular level. This is just a thought experiment. We can't actually make this measurement, but you know, we in principle know exactly what it means. That, in the whole universe, the amount of disorder in the molecular structure of the whole universe, that is increasing over time. Mm. That's what the second law of thermodynamics says. What I'm saying is, locally, I mean like where you have a life form. Just imagine having a baggie around you and just following you throughout your life. So at that particular spot inside the baggie, there's this highly organized thing which is remaining highly organized, in fact, even getting more organized as you're growing and developing and maturing, you know. Um, and how is that? So that, that's, that's the, the local exception that I mean. So where precisely in where an organism is, that's an exception. So species are, yeah, I didn't have in mind, I didn't have in mind species, although that, they raise certain interesting questions in themselves. Well, so, so you would consider... I, what, what's defining stability then? Is it is it lifespan? Is it this? Is 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 it the number of moving parts that an organism has that's holding together? Like like why why would a human be considered more stable than um, like say a, a mayfly or something like that? Yeah. Well, I, I I wouldn't I wouldn't say a human is more stable than a mayfly a mayfly. Um, I would say a human might be more complicated than a, a mayfly. So we were talking about complexity mostly, and the, the arrow is an arrow of complexity, not an arrow of stability. Oh, right, right, right. Okay. But then I was also saying... I'm mixing up a few things. Yeah, and also saying that the second law of thermodynamics is, so to speak, creating disorder, but disorder can be very stable in the sense that it's... Uh, like, if you have a room and it's very, very... Like, my office is, you know, sort of 
kind of ordered and a little disordered. Uh, it's I've been I've been in a lot of these offices. You're you're all right. You, <laughs> yeah, you yeah. Get well, a, it's not too bad. You get like a, a B plus. Yeah, I got sort of a B plus. <laughs> uh, but um, uh, but we could make it. You know, we could give me an F by just taking all the books off the shelf and throwing them around and going through my file cabinets and tossing all the files and everything. And then it would be very disorganized. Um, but it might be very stable in the sense that this very disorganized state will it will remain, remain. very disorganized. I mean, the, the, mm. like you might move one file from here to there or this paper from there to there, but um, the general level of, in other words, disorganization can be very stable in the sense that when um, a, a good example would be, you know, if you have a, a tree, for example, and it dies. So when it's alive, it's this complicated structure with an organization that is crucial for its survival. Like, you know, the roots play a certain function, the leaves play a certain function, and it all is organized together to work well. Um, when it dies, what'll happen is it'll slowly fall apart and then it'll just rot. And then all the bits of matter will just uh, return and get mixed up with the earth. And so that's like my office. That's like us tossing my office. You know, we just, the, the molecules that made up this organized thing are now disorganized. They're spread around, but it could be very stable. In fact, you know, uh, um, a mess. Oh, so anyway, I don't want to belabor the point. The main thing is that it's not stability. That's the focus. It's rather the per se. It's the stability of, organization the persistence of organization that's what's hard to explain because very complicated organizations have this tendency inherently to start to fall apart like you know you'll make a complicated arrangement of cards a house of cards and you know it'll tend to fall apart that's a bad example because those are extremely fragile but um you know maybe you make a sand castle and if you just leave it it's going to eventually you know, you come back the next day, you'll be able to see where it was, but not much of the shape. You come back the next week, you hardly will be able to tell even where it was. You know, it sort of becomes this just beach again. And so that's that's sort of the way I think about it. A sand castle is, unless you're there to keep on fixing it, it's going to fall apart. But an organism, any form of life, does that to itself spontaneously, like, like a bacterium. There's no... There's no human being paying any attention to it. It's just, it's not even, it doesn't have a mind, doesn't have a complicated intelligence or anything like that. But it's able to keep this very, very intricate, intricate thing, which even though it's microscopic, it's like more complicated than a, than a space shuttle. And the space shuttle is going to fall apart if you don't repair it. No one's repairing this bacterium. It's repairing itself. And it's not even, it's doing it without thinking. Mm-hmm. It's just happening. And so that's that's maybe a little bit of what I'm talking about. Um, well, so so well. First off, when you talk about these these computer models, is this is is this does that qualify as artificial life? Is is that something that um, that that then leads to the debate? What is life exactly, and and how how do you? I mean, we. we we build more and more. Speaking of complexity, I mean, most mammals and especially humans um, or primates in general tend to start using um, throughout their evolutionary he- um, history as they become more complex, seem to use more and more complex tools. And if you look at 
just how technology unfolds, cars become more complicated, um, and just kind of the evolution of of um, of our societies almost seem to be a bit more complicated too compared to, I mean, I, I guess calling a hunter-gatherer society simple might be maybe not the best way of thinking about it, but but it does seem like having cities and public transportation and sewage and all of this, it seems, it seems like not, not only are us as individual bodies, um, like me putting around a bit, a bag around me being more complicated, but the things that I'm able to do and the things that I'm making are also, there seems to be some propensity toward the complicated as well. Um, so it, it, it is, so that makes it a little more confusing to me why these why these models of um, artificial life aren't following this same sort of rule that seems almost obvious in in actual life. Yeah, a number of very interesting questions there. Let me try to answer answer a number of them and sure. and then um, come you know remind me of the ones that I that I don't get to. So first, let me say a little bit about what artificial life is, what it means. Um, so it's analogous to artificial intelligence, but it focuses on life. Artificial intelligence is the attempt to understand the um, fundamental principles of intelligence and and having a mind um, through making artificial devices that have those capacities. And so artificial life is similar. We try to understand life and the fundamental uh, principles involving life, like evolution, metabolism, things like that, really front central issues, organization. Um, but we try to understand them not in the way that biologists typically do, which is looking at actual forms of life on the history, on Earth and trying to uh, study how they work. What we do in artificial life is try to understand, it's like artificial intelligence, but focused on life. We try to understand right. life by making things that have those properties, like being able to evolve or having a metabolism or being able to organize themselves through artificial means. And so what are those artificial means? You can think of them as we use different media. Instead of using biological media, we might use computational media. And that's sometimes called soft artificial life, the soft referring to software. There's another medium that people use, which is they build physical devices that illustrate the kind of or exhibit the kind of behavior that are characteristic of life forms, like that maybe reproduce themselves or uh, organize social forms of behavior in hardware. Like these are people who are working in robotics, basically. So there's an artificial life branch of robotics, which is trying to make robots that behave like life forms but making actual physical devices out of you know silicon and steel and stuff like that that exhibit this kind of behavior. So that's sometimes called hard artificial life. Soft artificial life, those are the computer simulations and models I was telling you, telling you about earlier. Hard artificial life, you imagine a bunch of robots running around the room and maybe the robots are reproducing or the robots are organizing themselves in some way or et cetera. Um, another branch of artificial life is using a different, a third kind of medium, which is the medium of biochemistry or, or chemistry. 
And so this is what I was describing. Uh, uh, this might have been before our interview started. I forget. Um, but it involves things like um, going into the wet lab and getting a bunch of chemicals from a chemical supply house and putting them in a test tube and measuring them and heating them and cooling them and doing various things and shaking them and then looking under the microscope and seeing, oh, we started with a bunch of things that were inert. None of them were alive. And we actually recreated life, a new form of life, a very simple form of life in the laboratory. That's called wet artificial life. Yeah, this is before we started recording. Yeah, so. okay. But anyway, there are those are the three main kind of branches of artificial life, soft, hard, and wet artificial life. They're all aimed at trying to understand something these these fundamental features of living systems like their ability to organize themselves, their ability to evolve spontaneously, including if it is in fact a truth about biology, ordinary familiar life that it has this ability to evolve and there's an arrow to that evolution so that there's an inherent tendency to make things that are more and more complex in the fold of all the life forms. So that's generally speaking what, uh, you know, a quick definition of what artificial life is. Now you mentioned, does this, doesn't this raise a question of whether these things are really alive or not? And it does. It, it forces you to rethink what does it mean to be alive? And, in the beginning of artificial life, the field, thinking of it's a, a field existing called artificial life, thinking of itself as artificial life. So this is this was happening in um, around 1990, 1989 that this started. Um, people were talking a lot at that point about whether these computer models, for example, deserve to be called literally alive. And some people would say yes, and some people would say no. And that's a kind of interesting question, a philosophical question, by the way. I mean, that's the kind of questions that philosophers are good at answering. For whatever reason, people don't think about that so much anymore. Now they're interested in other kinds of questions that are more pressing. That question seems a bit abstract. They're more interested in questions like these guys in the wet lab doing wet artificial life. If they make something, they make some kind of thing. We look under the microscope. How are we going to tell if that thing they made is alive? That doesn't seem like such a abstract question about whether there's models alive. Here we have an actual physical right. thing. It's in a test tube. It's reproducing. It's extracting raw materials from its environment. Like, what else would it need to be? Does it, is that enough? So yeah, that's an interesting question. It's that's funny because question. intuitively, of the three categories, certainly the wet artificial life is the thing that I'm, I'm sure would kind of creep more people out. Would, would people, I mean, even in my mind, I, I think that's that's the one that, to me, rings true as being the most lifelike. I, I don't know why. I guess because we're surrounded by uh, well, wet, the, wet life, kind of. Yeah, exactly. It's the most like the familiar forms of life. Right, right. Um, so it, it's uh, <laughs> so what kind of um, uh, what kind of ethical problems? Um, are kind of being run into when when say let's just take something like wet art, artificial life. Yeah, well, there there are social and ethical issues that are important, I think, to think about if you're making artificial life. And I'm and I'm I've been working with a number of people who are uh, trying to make life in the laboratory. Some some of the some of the people doing that are are close colleagues of mine. And one thing I will say is. 
the ones that I've been working with have been very aware that these larger questions are there and they feel it's their responsibilities as scientists to think about these things and alert the rest of us in, in the world that... Hey, I these... might be playing God over here. Exactly. <laughs> it, it's exactly. weird. That it, it's, it's kind of funny, that aversion, too. Like, why, why we tend to process... Why that's, why that's such a bad thing to play God when... Especially people that are most into God are the ones that are most upset by people. Play. People that like the idea of God the most are, are the ones that have the biggest issue with other people behaving in, like, God-like <laughs> ways, you know? I, I think that the, it's, this, idea, this worry about playing people in artificial life playing God is is uh it comes up a lot and it should it deserves to come up however i actually think that a lot of the energy for that behind that question comes from a source that has nothing to do with god or religion at all it really has to do with a question about being a responsible citizen and um so what i'm saying is these scientists who are doing this many of them do feel a responsibility to to be uh, careful, and they're and they've tried to and they've enlisted me to help them think about this and develop practices that are safe and uh, develop uh, frameworks for regulating and thinking about the future, which is very tough to do because when you're dealing with evolution, especially creative evolution and life forms that can evolve in unanticipated ways, we don't know what the future is. No one can predict the future, right? And so, what are we going to do now? to be responsible today in a world where our kids are going to grow up, you know, in 20 years. Uh, and we don't even know what that world will be like. And we're doing things today in our laboratory that can drastically affect that world. Right. So, and, and much, much the same way with like, sometimes, you, you know, you hear people introducing a new species being like, well, this bug's a problem here. So we'll get this thing in that eats these bugs and then everything will be perfect. And the next thing you know, now that species is the big problem. Exactly. You're going to possibly run into these problems with making new wet life with, with, um, with, with soft life. You can have some runaway program that becomes a virus and potentially infects computers and shuts everything down or whatever. And we've all seen the, the Terminator with the hard, <laughs> the hard life in the, in the Skynet. Um, so, so when you, when you say people are, are cautious about that is there is there any kind of criteria in mind when 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 thinking about this or when moving forward or or is it is it just kind of you have a roundtable discussion and and no there there are i mean is there like an fda for making new life uh there isn't there isn't an fda there's actually no form of the government regulatory structure right now that has oversight of this but there are people in Washington and people in these laboratories that I'm talking about who are doing the work, who are thinking about this. I've been to many of those meetings, and people are trying to people are trying to figure out how to how to address these problems. But it's a matter of figuring out whether the existing methods we've been using in the past have are adequate, or whether we need to invent new methods. So, what do we mean by the existing methods? I mean things like cost benefit analysis or risk analysis. These are established fields and but it turns out that there those are both extremely hard to apply and maybe impossible to apply when we're dealing things with things like life forms that have that are so hard to predict you know you can't do a cost benefit analysis unless you know what the 
possible outcomes are and how likely they are. And with life forms, we don't have that kind of knowledge. So we need to invent new ways of addressing these problems. And there are some w- other new ways that have been a, uh, people have developed, such as the precautionary principle. But, you know, uh, without going into details, uh, that also has some, that's not the perfect solution, I think. And so I think there's a, I tell my students that in addition to having people, really smart people try to figure out how to make life or how to uh, figure out if there is an error in evolution, we also need equally smart people to figure out how are we going to be responsible members of society, especially scientists be responsible members of society, generating this uh, a, a, a new world in which um, fundam- a world which can be different in fundamental ways from the world we're living in now, and we can't predict what those differences will be. Let me make one other connection with something you mentioned a while ago. You mentioned sure. culture and technology also evolves and society evolves and seems to get more complex. And I think you're absolutely right. Let me focus on technology for a minute because this is one of the other things I've, I've studied. Very interested in the evolution of technology, partly because it, just for the reasons you said, it's, it seems to be a kind of evolution that, like biological evolution, has some kind of arrow behind it. I mean, technologies do seem to be getting more and more complex. Not all technologies, but the most complex technologies seem to be getting more complex over time. So, you know, some things remain simple, but the complicated ones, you know, the most complicated things 100 years ago in technology are now outclassed by the ones that are uh, the most complicated now. So there's a similar kind of arrow that seems to be... uh, uh, you can use to describe the evolution of technology. And so I'm also studying that, trying to figure out how to answer that question, figure out how it's similar to, is it maybe similar to biological evolution in some ways? Is it the same kind of result, but for very different reasons? Because culture and technology arises through a very different process from the processes that govern life on earth. But it might be, it might be that there are higher level principles about evolution that explain why this there is a real arrow of complexity in both of these domains, in both biology and in technology, and then maybe also in society, as you were saying, maybe also in human thought. Uh, so that's that's a big that's another big question that I as a philosopher am thinking about mm. you know how how similar and how different are biological evolution and the evolution of technology or the evolution of culture in general or societies? Are there similar arrows of complexity? Do they have similar reasons if they exist? Um, is there some more general principle here to understand and I don't know what the answer is, but I'm very interested in that question. Mm-hmm. And that's that's uh, one of the ones that you know makes me excited to get out of bed every morning. Oh, that's fantastic! Well, this is this is uh, this is a wonderful. Uh, you've given us so many topics to explore with uh, with more guests in the future, and and uh, this is a very thought provoking episode. And you did a fantastic job of explaining everything um, to me. By the way, I was oh, I was a little worried I was going to get lost for a few moments there, and I. I hung in there. That was fantastic. You're a great communicator. Uh, thank you, Mark Badeau, for joining me on the Here We Are podcast. And thank you, listeners, for being intelligent, thoughtful, creative, interesting people and tuning in each week 
I'll talk with you guys next week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. So I have an update for you with my fall tour, which will be starting in October. And I'm this week, I'm going to start loading up the dates on uh, my website, shanemoss.com, M-A-U-S-S. And um, so, so these are just the dates that I have contracts for and are 100% confirmed. There's a bunch of dates in between that uh, that we're working on putting together that that will be happening that are very close. I just can't tell you about just yet. So if you don't hear your city on here, don't fret just yet. All of the cities will be up um, within a week or two. All of these things take a little longer. It's a complicated uh, 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 tours. Uh, turns out are incredibly complicated to put together, especially ones that are this many cities. So here's a little preview. I will for sure be in, starting in October, I'll be in Phoenix. I will be in uh, Oklahoma City, Dallas, Houston, Shreveport, Louisiana, uh, Mobile, Alabama, Pensacola, Birmingham, uh, Atlanta. I will be in Savannah, Georgia, and Charleston, South Carolina, um, in Charlotte, in Raleigh, I will be in Charlottesville, Virginia, in Washington, D.C., um, I'll be hitting up New York City and Boston, um, working on some more New England stuff. There, There's a bunch of stuff already in between these dates that is just not quite confirmed yet. I'll be in Pittsburgh, uh, Cleveland, Columbus, Fort Wayne, Chicago, uh, La Crosse, Wisconsin, uh, Minneapolis, Billings, Montana, and then I'm I'm currently lining up some stuff in um, in in the Northwest. I have um, I have Salem ready to go in Salem, Oregon, Eugene, um, uh, Bend, Oregon, Humboldt, California. And working on a bunch of other things that I guess I probably shouldn't mention until they're completely confirmed. But there's going to be a whole bunch of more dates coming, and I'm it's it's been uh, it's been going so well. I'm putting it together. It's been going so well, and I've had so much interest from other places that I'm trying to uh, loop back through and do more of the middle of the country um, and going through like Salt Lake City and Denver and and um, St. Louis and a, a bunch of places like that that I just haven't uh, I haven't started booking um, much of December just yet but stay tuned for that hopefully hopefully next week and in the next two weeks I'll have a bunch more stuff to tell you about so I I hope uh, if you hear one of the cities I hope you can check out my website and catch one of the shows. Uh, it's going to be a pretty big deal. I'm going to be doing a bunch of awesome promotion for it and stuff like that. So thank you all for listening, of course, once again. And uh, as always, those of you that listen all the way to the end are, of course, my favorite.
I'm Dave Ross. Hey, and I'm Hampton Yunt. And we host Suicide Buddies on Starburns Audio. That's right. It's a podcast about suicide, but not to make light of it. We actually talk about suicidal thoughts, depression, kind of with a sense of levity that Dave and I have with each other. He's my best friend. Come on. Yeah, we're buddies. <laughs> suicide Buddies. <laughs> That's the title. One of our favorite episodes that we've recorded so far is about this guy, Jan Pataki, who was a Polish aristocrat in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, one of the reasons it's possible that he killed himself <laughs> is that he thought he was a werewolf. Oh. Check out a clip. It also makes me think, like, we were talking about in the Norway uh, black metal episode, how, like, just the culture of your surroundings can affect you. Like, yeah. he's in a castle in Poland. <laughs> He's like, I mean, if you yeah. lived in a castle in Poland and no one knew anything about anything, you might be like, I'm a bat. I'm probably a bat. <laughs> <laughs> That's like literally what happened to Batman. He literally is in his mansion. He's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm, I'm a, a bat. bat. I'm a bat. I'm a, I'm a bat. bat. I'm, a, I'm, I'm a, bat. a bat that helps people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bat that helps people. I'm a, I'm a I don't know what you want from me. And my, uh, and my, my re- girlfriend, she's a cat. She's a cat. My she, girlfriend's she, a cat. She steals things. She's a woman who steals things. She's a cat. I'm a bat. I'm a I bat. Help people. She's a cat. We fight a penguin. My, uh, my- 